2: Jay Wells spins one up the wing and Cinesato. watched by Larry Robinson. Cinesato has Derek Smith the trailer, moves to the front, Murphy a
1: drive off of Smith, Poulin scores! Dave Poulin in sudden death overtime, it'll
3: take another game back in Philadelphia as the Flyers have won it
2: 2-1. Well, welcome back, Ray Dinger and Glenn Mack. Now this hour is sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, Ray, Dave played six full seasons, parts of two more for the Flyers. He was captain after Bobby Clark, winner of the Selkie Trophy as the league's top defensive forward, key member of some great teams, went on to coach Notre Dame hockey for a decade, now broadcaster, just back from the Olympics, always a class act. He joins us. Dave, thanks for being part of our show today.
3: My pleasure, guys. It's uh, wherever I go and whatever arena I'm in, uh, I'm a Philadelphia Flyer. Just, uh, and that never leaves me, so it's good to be back.
2: Well, thank you. Let's start at the beginning. Your hometown, Timmins, Ontario, Great night White North, 600 miles north of uh, Toronto, Goldmine Town. And I, I remember that the story is that you started playing hockey on figure skates.
3: Well, I was a figure skater. I never played hockey in Timmins officially. I was a figure skater until I was eight years old. And so, you know, I played pickup hockey on the outdoor rinks, but it wasn't until I moved to Toronto at eight that, you know, when I went to my first official hockey practice, not only were they figure skates guys, but they were my sister skates with black shoe polish on them. And so when the shoe polish actually came off early in the game, it didn't go that well for me as you might imagine. But, uh, what they couldn't argue with was that I could skate, and and that was you know, the base of my skating came from figure skating, not from learning how to play hockey.
1: <laughs> the um, on the scale of uh, uh, big people, big famous people that came out of Timmins, Ontario, where would um, wh- wh- where would uh, Frank and Peter Mahavlich compared to Shania Twain? How would that how would that how would that break down?
3: Okay, we got to get it straight with the Mahavlis boys because I see them on a regular basis. I'll see them in passing. You know, I'll see Frank in an airport. I'll see Peter in a rink. They're from the suburbs, guys. They're from Schumacher. That's the suburbs of Timmins.
1: Uh, oh. And
3: Donnie and Donnie Lever. he's from South Porcupine. That's another suburb of the <laughs> metropolis of Timmins. Now, Shania Twain is legit. She's from Timmins, and she ranks just slightly ahead of the hockey players, as you might imagine. Okay.
2: You were um, average-sized players. I remember maybe 5'10", um, but you were undersized throughout your youth, correct? And and how did that impact your game?
3: Well, it had a great impact, and it ironically, it had an impact because of the Boston Bruins and the Philadelphia Flyers through the 1970s. And I was tiny, guys. Um, like, I think my my second year of high school i was still five foot three 110 pounds i mean i was small and i was playing in the best league in toronto and i would lead the league in scoring and the next year when i went back they would say well you did that in minor bantam but you'll never be able to do it in bantam and i would be the last one to make the team lead the league in scoring again and go through the process again and you know at the same time in the early 70s it was you know the broad street bullies and the big bad bruins And I always got a great satisfaction that I went on to play for both teams because they cost me a lot of, of hardship. And back then, if you weren't big and powerful, you couldn't play hockey, you know, through that little stretch of time, or you you, people thought that was the only way you could play. And, you know, my skating was always my biggest asset. And I grew later in high school. And then actually after high school continued to grow. So um, I have a, a great love of the small player in the game and always have because it's just, you know, it's persisting and fighting through and, and getting to where you want to go.
1: Well, I remember you talking about how, how you came to, uh, how you came to go to Notre Dame and play at Notre Dame. Um, there was, you were playing for a team uh, called the Dixie Beehives. Uh, and um, one of your teammates uh, had, was being recruited by a lot of different schools and it was in contacted by a lot of different schools uh and Notre Dame being one of them um but he had already committed to Michigan State so he didn't have any real interest in you know the questionnaire that came from Notre Dame so he handed it to you and uh you filled it out and sent it back to Notre Dame and that's kind of how you wound up at South Bend
3: I can still see the big gold MD in the corner of that envelope it was embossed it was sitting beside me in the locker room And the arena we played in, guys, the Dixie Arena Gardens made the Boston Garden look like an Olympic ice sheet. And it was the tiniest little rink you'd ever seen. And I had joined the team late, as per usual. I was just really starting to fill out and had made the Junior B team, but not the Tier 2 Junior A team at the start of the year. And so then for probably a three- to four-week period, I was playing every game for both teams. So I was literally playing seven games a week. And I said, guys, I, I can't do this. And now we're into late November, so officially a member of the Tier 2 Junior A team and quickly rose to lead that team in scoring. And, and it was all word of mouth for colleges back then. And the player's name was Billy Shutt, and he was a straight-A student and a, a very aggressive defenseman in that little band box arena. So he attracted the attention, but but there were a total of 11 players from that team who went to the NCAA route largely because of him as as schools kept coming out. And... When I sent the information sheet back into Notre Dame with a very nice cover letter that said, it could have been from the creative writing class guys. It was like, thank you for your interest in me as a hockey player. And <laughs> at which time they were like, who is this guy? <laughs> but, I, but I played for a good team in a good league and that started the interest. And then, you know, immediately when the next school called and said, are you talking to anybody? I said, well, of course I'm talking to Notre Dame. I didn't let on that it was a one-way conversation (laughs) at that point. And uh, and then it snowballed from there. I think Cornell was involved, and and then it grew. And I remember going back into my high school guidance counselor, who didn't even know. I played for a club team, so he didn't even know I was an athlete. And I had a stack of letters, and there were probably 20 different letters. And it was Princeton, Harvard, um, Yale, Cornell, Michigan, Michigan State, Notre Dame, and he was looking at these, and he's like, well, you can't go to any of these schools. And I said, well, well, actually, I can go to any of them I want to. I just want your help. And then he became very invested in it, and and we had a great time and, and narrowed it down. I went to Notre Dame first. You were allowed six recruiting trips back then, and I called home the morning I arrived and said to my dad, I'm not taking my other five trips. I'm coming to school here.
2: That was it. The Golden Dome got you, didn't it? It Uh, certainly
3: did. And it was a freezing cold day, (laughs) like uh, just an awful day in January on a Saturday morning, and it won me over immediately.
2: So you went there. You you played four years. I know you missed uh, part of your NHL entry draft year with spinal meningitis, but you were were a standout. Uh, But the plan after that, from what I've seen, is that you were going to go into the business world. You had an opportunity, decided to play one year in Sweden. If you would, uh, by the way, Dave Pullen is our guest on Tell Us Your Story. Take us, take us through that and how that ended up being a route to the NHL.
3: The whole um, business part of it, they had uh, Procter & Gamble recruited from the international rosters at these universities, and they actually recruited me in early December of my senior year. And as I went through the process, you know, it was like the more people you talk to, well, Procter & Gamble is where you went for a training program. So I accepted a job in international sales and after graduation when the opportunity came up to go to europe i called G and i said look i'm supposed to start in august but i've got this opportunity to go and live in europe for a year and play hockey and I, I still remember the guy's name it's crystal clear in my mind larry stadnik and he said well dave that would be fine we'd be we'd welcome you back in a year you know go and live in an in an international market and that'll only enhance your your skills with us and when I got over there, Ted Sater, who went on to mm-hmm. coach in the NHL with the Flyers and the Rangers and Buffalo, was my head coach. And it was just that little tweak of final development, guys, that a lot of people never are fortunate enough to have. Just a person who took an interest in me and and a demand that I could do more, that I could be a better player, and that he could push me to a different level. and And he was able to do that. And so it was coming back. From there I, I, you know, came back a totally different player and from an individual standpoint. And I led the league in goals, which I had never done at any level. I was always an assist guy, but he pushed me to expand my game and expand my role. And just just that piece of it, when I came back, I went to Portland, Maine on an amateur tryout offer for sixteen games, played for Tommy McVeigh there, and that was a, a great team. They were first in the in the division and poised to go on. And it just was the final springboard. I came back with so much confidence and, and also with an understanding that, look, I'm going to play in the American League for the rest of the year, and then I'm going to go back to Procter & Gamble.
1: Yeah, but of course, you do. You you play at Maine, and as you said, you played very well. It was a really good team. Uh, and at the end of that year, at the very end, of, as the season's winding down, you get you get a call up. You get a chance to go up and play for the Flyers. Uh, and your first game uh, was against the Toronto Maple Leafs in Maple Leaf Gardens, which was the team you grew up following, because you grew up not—you know—you grew up in in Ontario, and the Maple Leafs were a team that you knew, and you knew the history. You certainly knew the history of that building. Uh, and you get out there in your first NHL game is against the Maple Leafs, and I believe you scored on your first two shots. Is am I correct in that?
3: I did, um, and the, the, maybe the the front end of that story, the day before was April Fool's Day, and so I was in Portland, Maine, on April Fool's Day, in Duffy's Pancake House. And the call came in to Duffy. I was having breakfast. And we were on our way to New Haven to play that night. And Duffy says, hey, Dave, it's Keith Allen. And, and I'm like, of course, it's April Fool's Day. Of course, it's Keith Allen. Yeah. And so I answered the phone very nonchalantly. And he said, you know, a voice I'd never heard. And he said, Dave, we're going to call you up to play against Toronto tomorrow night. And, and I'm looking at the phone and trying to, you know, I guess, understand how to handle this. And thinking that definitely it's one of my teammates pranking me. And sure enough, you know, that was the plan. But I had to play in New Haven that night. So we bused from Portland down to New Haven, played that night, popped up the next morning at 6 a.m., flew to Toronto by myself, bag over my shoulder, sticks in my hand, and, of course, went in the front door of Maple Leaf Gardens. I didn't even know there was a player's entrance huh. and, and didn't know anyone on the team, guys, because I'd never been to training camp. And, it, you know, it was that. It was the way, you know. Who is this guy walking into our locker room, and why is he here? And, and so, um, but I was welcomed in, and by a number of the guys, and, and settled in, and was fortunate enough. It was my boyhood hero, Daryl Sitler, who set me up on the first on the first goal, and then uh, Ilka Sinisalo, the dearly departed Ilka Sinisalo, assisted on my second period goal, which was shorthanded. So, quite a night, by all means.
2: I, I can't imagine. You, you get called up. It's your first game. I don't know how many minutes you got that game, but I can't imagine you started, can't imagine you played more than whatever, 12, 14 minutes, and you score on your first two shots. I know this is a silly story because I know it's not true, but there's a part of your mind that thought, like, oh, this is going to be easier than I expected.
3: No, you know, it was it was more surreal than anything. A building where I'd watched a number of games. The first year I moved to Toronto, um, the first NHL game I saw was Bobby Orr, and, you know, and it was a magical building every time I walked into that building with the TV lights and everything else. And it, it was, there wasn't even time it happened so fast and it was so ridiculous that there wasn't time to really think about that. In that first game, my first shift, I was on the ice. Well, the first shift of the game, the Flyers took a penalty and Bob McCannon said, well, let's see if you can play kid. And he put me out to kill the penalty. And they were playing the Rangers in the playoff that year, the much dreaded series that awaited with, with uh, you know, Herb Brooks there, and, and they were worried about their speed. So they didn't soft, you know, pedal me into the game. They threw me into the game. And I, I literally, my first shift was shorthanded, and I played quite a bit that night.
1: And, of course, you finish out that season, and um, then the next season – you, go to, you do get to go to training camp, and you are a fully invested member of the team. Um, and I remember you talking about how, in terms of getting ready for that season, um, you spent an, an awful lot of time that summer working out with Bob Clark, that uh, you did a lot of training together. You used to run five miles a day with him. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that was kind of your introduction to Flyers hockey and uh, the work ethic that was part of this team. You can't get you couldn't get a better example of that than Bob Clark.
3: Well, you certainly couldn't. And if, if we back up to the end of the season before, you know, the season has just ended. I graduated from college, um, got married, spent the time in Europe, spent time in Portland, Maine, now back in Philadelphia. I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had to buy a car. You know, I was back in the country. And someone in the office right when the season ended, as disappointing as it was, said, well, you know, I said, is there anybody that can help me buy a car? a specific car. And they said, well, Bob Clark has an affiliation with that type of dealership. When I called him, guys, I didn't know whether I had to introduce myself. Like, I played five games for the Flyers. I didn't even know if he knew who I was. And, you know, he was so gracious. He met us at the dealership. He helped us buy the car. And then he said to me, what do you do in the summer? And I said, you know, like, Mr. Clark, I have no idea. And he said, stay here and work out with me. Now, why that came out of his mouth at that time, I have no idea. And, you know, he said, uh, some let one of the guy's places, if you don't know what you're going to do and stay here and that'll put you off on the right foot. So I had the luxury of working out with a Hall of Famer six days a week. And, you know, and and selfishly, it was great for me. But, you know, as you think back, it was he thought he had found someone to push him through his last couple of years. Mm. And no one had ever worked out with him in the mornings because no one wanted to get up at six o'clock, six days a week. And he convinced me that that was the way to go, and I benefited as much as— it was, the, it was literally the final piece for me that put me at a whole different level of physical conditioning and mental conditioning, because when you train with Clarkey there's <laughs> a good part of it that's mental as well.
2: So you found a mentor, you found a close friend, you found a guide. I mean, Bob, It. it you said it, but I just kind of want to reiterate it. Bob Clark created the opportunity for you to learn how to be an NHL player, because he took you in that way.
3: No question about it. Yeah. No question. You can't even replace that. And in the you know following years, I tried to do it for other players, young players, and you know, and as they came through, and I tried to teach others to do it for young players. And I, I think we did a pretty successful job mentoring the young guys with the Flyers, and then on with the Bruins. But but it was. He specifically made that decision, and it changed my life in many ways.
2: So as Ray said, 83-84 is your rookie year. Bob McCammon is the coach. And you get put on a line with Brian Propp and Tim Kerr, uh, which, I mean, that's three great names, three real pros, each of whom had terrific careers. Uh, And you set a franchise record that season that, that stood for a while until Michael Renberg. Uh, for points by a rookie, 31 goals, 76 points. Um, Just talk of, if you would, a little bit, uh, Dave Pullen, about the chemistry of that line, because, boy, it was a good one for a long time.
3: It started with Brian and I, and Timmy was still playing center, and, you know, he was the prototypical big centerman, and Timmy decided that I was his guy for whatever reason. And so in practice, at the start of practice, we'd do these, like, little 2-on-0 drills, and he'd always say, go with me, go with me, and then he'd tell the coaches you got to watch us together. We're unbelievable. And he'd say, we've got to have really good passes. here, really good passes. And we'd go back up and down the ice and then he'd skate by and he'd say, great chemistry, great chemistry with that kid. You got to put me with that kid. You got to put me with that guy. And <laughs> so it was really Timmy that was making up the line. And so when he got on the right side with Brian and I, um, everything clicked and, you know, Timmy had four brilliant years in a row um, north of 50, you know, four straight times. If I'm right, it was 58, 54, 54, 58, or something like that. Still holds the power play record uh, in the NHL with 34 power play goals. Something like but that, still, yeah, a ton. Yeah, still the record. But I didn't play the power play with them. And, but I was just five on five. And Proper and I killed penalties together. And it was – Timmy was so easy to play with. There's a a phrase that that I've developed on the media side that came from playing with Tim Kerr, and that he demanded and commanded the puck, both. And he'd constantly be badgering you to give it to him, but when he was on the ice, you looked at him, and you had no choice but to give it to him because he was always in a good place, always hanging out in front of the mat, but just a special player. And and we did have a special relationship, and we played together the the majority of five-plus years um and and really got to a point where proper and I, shorthanded you know was just you knew where he was all the time on the ice and we had the same you know thought process and the same chemistry with timmy in five on five situations and as i said i wasn't a power play guy and didn't play a lot on the power play but you know playing with timmy and Proppy five on five was just it was so much fun
1: yeah, it was uh, it was fun for you and it's fun for the fans because there was certainly magic in that combination and you guys and you guys made it work. Um, you know, Dave. I, I guess the big, um, the, the the really big momentous moment comes. You know, in that one offseason when they decide that Bob Clark is going to retire as a player uh, and he's going to move up to the front office, he's going to become the general manager, and then comes, then comes the question of who's going to succeed Bob Clark as captain of the Flyers. I mean, nobody could have embodied that team or represented the team or worn the sea more proudly uh, than Bob did all those years. But now somebody had to replace him. Uh, And originally it was supposed to be Daryl Sittler, as you said, your boyhood hero. But the day of the opener, Daryl gets traded, and now they have to find another captain. And lo and behold, they choose you. I mean, I guess there were a lot of people that were surprised. I just wonder how surprised you were.
3: Uh, more surprised than the other people were, I'll tell you that. Um, I was shocked, absolutely shocked. And we went to a luncheon two days before the game, and it was to be, that was where the announcement was to be. And I can remember someone coming over and talking to Bob and he was at the head table up on the stage in the dais and saying something to him. And and it was at that moment that Sitler was traded. And so we thought the announcement was coming that day to be captain. And we had taken a bus over to Center City to the, to the luncheon and we took the bus back and nobody knew at that point Sittler got called in and was traded. And so I went home and got a call probably a couple hours later to come back to the Coliseum. And it was Mike Keenan and it was Mike Keenan that said, you know, we've traded Daryl Sittler and, and we're going to appoint you captain. And I was so careful always to say I didn't replace Bob Clark. No one replaced Bob Clark. I followed Bob Clark. And but once again, he was still present. He helped me out with a lot of things. But it was the support group around me that was so unbelievably—and I don't know if receptive is the right word, but—but um, but I guess it is because they did accept me as captain. A number of them, um, some probably didn't, and and it was it was the handful of Brad McCrimmon and Mark Howe, um, Brad Marsh, uh, Timmy Kerr. Um, and, and Proper was in the mix. That was probably the core group of who was behind me initially. And, you know, and it didn't matter what anyone else said or did, they were going to follow. And Marcy had been a captain in Calgary at a young age. He was incredibly helpful. But it was that core group and, and Brad McCrimmon's leadership, and far too many of these names aren't with us any longer, guys, but yeah. Brad McCrimmon's leadership was just immense through that. So whenever I encountered things, that's the group I relied on. It wasn't a formal leadership group as they have with teams now, but those were those were my guys. And Dave, they
1: backed me immensely. Dave, did anybody, um, did Mike or anybody tell you why you? I mean, because you're right. I mean, you know, Brad Marsh had been a captain in Calgary. Mark Cal was a great leader and a great player. McCrimmon certainly the same. Why was it that they made the decision to, to choose you. Did anybody ever sit you down and say why?
3: Uh, no, not, not formally. And I, I would say in retrospect, it was you had a brand new first time general manager who just retired, you had a brand new NHL coach doing it for the first time. And I think the brand new part of it was what enabled them to do that. And, you know, they were stepping out on so many limbs with the group they were putting together that, I guess another limb wasn't going, to, uh, wasn't going to shake things up that much, and they thought they could do it.
2: Makes sense. Hey, let's take a quick break. Dave Pullen is our guest today for Tell Us Your Story. A lot of great flyers, years that we're going to discuss ahead. This hour is sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP.
0: Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Into the corner, Nielsen trying to draw over Prop. Now they come near side to Reinhardt. Into the slot, broken up. The Flyers have a breakaway.
3: Short-handed. There goes. Pulling by himself. Shot. Score.
2: Well, that goal you just heard is one of the uh, most famous in Flyers history. Dave Poulin against the Quebec Nordiques 1985 playoffs. Yep, two man shorthanded. He scores uh, and uh, helps win the game. We'll talk about that in one second. Dave Poulin is our guest on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com/slash WIP. So. Dave, let, let's go to that. Uh, it's the 1985 playoffs. You're up three games to two against Quebec. Um, two-man two advantage. Quebec has a two-man advantage. Mario Gosselin in goal for Quebec. Describe the play, if you could.
3: So we, we had talked um, about Quebec caving in deeper and deeper on their power play, and it was Mario Marwan, Peter Stasny, that were at the top. And when the pass went across, I jumped the pass and I literally picked that pass off at the top of our circle. That's how deep their defenders were. And so now I looked up and had the length of the ice to go. And I had broken two ribs in game two in Quebec. And so now I'd come back and sat out two games and played in game five, which we won in Quebec. And then now it's game six. So it had nerve blocks. I had a flat jacket on and, um, you know, at that point, it's all adrenaline, but all I can remember when I looked up is, man, that is a long way down to the other end. Cause it's it literally three quarters of the rink I had to go. And we had talked about Mario Gosselin and we talked about top glove. And I remember Murray Craven clearly in my ear, you know, going down If you can even imagine digesting that and taking Murray Craven saying top shelf, top shelf, top shelf. And so managed to get it up underneath the bar And as I circled, I remember getting my one arm up, which was my signature celebration. And I think Mark Howe was the first one there, uh, one of the other two players on the ice, maybe Dougie Crossman was the other one, and just met me in a full crash. And I think that that is by far the most talked about moment I get whenever I'm back in Philadelphia. And that's the one everyone remembers. But I think the key part was that it it put that young team which was a lot of you know if you're growing up you have your favorite teams by how old you were how invested you were and and so for a certain age group their favorite team was the first team of our group that went to the finals mm-hmm. and that goal gave us a two nothing advantage and sort of catapulted us into the finals. so i think it was more significant from what it did for the team than it was from an individual standpoint
1: it was certainly an electrifying moment, and um, there are a lot of great moments at the Spectrum, a lot of um, nights that uh, those of us that were there will always remember, and that's, that's one of them. But you just, you just mentioned what a young team it was in so many ways, and uh, a team that in I think almost anybody's eyes kind of exceeded all people's expectations. And then you go, on, you go on to the finals, and in the finals, here you are playing for the Stanley Cup against what might be the greatest team of all time, is that Edmonton Oiler team, Um, going into it, what was the feeling on your team? I mean, what was your own, you obviously knew the challenge that you were facing, but what did you think your chances were of actually upsetting those guys?
3: Uh, very real. And, you know, we, we beat the Islanders that year in the playoffs and they had been the nemesis for Edmonton along the way. And, you know, we knocked off the great New York Islanders and we were, we were probably. I don't know if confident and naive go together, but I'm going to put those two words together and say that, you know, we just believe we could do whatever. And and we won that first game and we were missing, I think McCrimmon was out. We never got there fully healthy. I think it was Brad McCrimmon that was out with a shoulder injury. And I remember in, in we won game one at home, four to one. And I was lying on the sofa about three in the morning and the freezing was coming out of my ribs, which was the cross game ritual, which no one wants. Um, and thinking to myself, I was watching a replay of the game and thinking to myself, we're going to win the Stanley cup. And we're like, we're actually going to win the Stanley cup. And we, we played very well in game one. And of course, if you really look hard at the numbers, Mr. Gretzky just decided to take over the series and, and that was the only time, guys, after that game lying on that sofa that I allowed myself to think about receiving the Stanley Cup, like, like getting handed the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. And we lost game one, and I never thought about it again, never let myself think about it again. I, we had opportunities to get there, but I never let myself have that exact thought again.
2: Uh, Dave Pullen, one of your jobs as captain, maybe your toughest job, was to kind of serve as a buffer between the players and, and Mike Keenan. Who was as tough a coach as there ever was, what was tell us about your relationship with Mike Keenan?
3: It was constant it was there was never a day off from that relationship uh, even when there was a day off from that relationship and it was just so he wanted to make everybody better and he wanted he he thrived on confrontation he thought that. He got a better result from a hockey team when there was tension in the air. I disagreed totally. We had our battles about that. But he always tried to inject some sort of controversy. It would be like, okay, I think this interview is going fine so far. And Mike would be in this interview and saying, hey, we got to totally change what we're doing here, guys. You're asking the wrong questions. He's not answering them the right way. I mean, that's what he would do. And you'd be like, no, glad, glad we're going not fine. talking to him, Ray. <laughs> But that's what he did, and he felt that that pushed people to a different level. And begrudgingly, guys, if you talk to that group of players from Scotty Mellonby to Murray Craven to Rick Tockett and on down the list, um, they'll begrudgingly admit they would never, ever have been the players they were ultimately in their careers without that push at that juncture. And But from a comfort standpoint, forget that word. It was constant, and it was... I still have flashbacks, and it was four years, and I just... Uh, worked in the Olympics with Glenn Healy who had Mike for all of one year in New York in which they won the cup. So he had him one year, they won the Stanley cup and all Healy could do was talk about Mike Keenan. I go, Glenn, you you like had him for junior kindergarten. I had him for graduate school. I mean, forget it. You know, (laughs) one year doesn't do it, but you know what? He got it out of us guys. And, uh, and that was ultimately what led to a lot of us having long and successful careers.
1: Yeah, he was a great coach, and uh, and there's no doubt. I mean, all the guys that we've had, we've had several guys from that team in that era on with us for Tell Us Your Story, and we all wind up talking about Mike Keenan, and they all kind of say the same thing. He was really tough to play for, but he made me a better player. I, You know, one of the things that happened, Dave, in that time, um, you talk about you, know, you kind of had to be the buffer between the coach and the players, but the other really traumatic event that happened was the, was the death of Pelly Lindbergh, who – had come on in a very short period of time and established himself as one of the best goaltenders in hockey and looked like he was going to have a tremendous future in the NHL and was enormously popular with you guys in the locker room. And then suddenly, tragically, he dies in a car crash. Um, what was that like for you as a team to live through, and how much of that kind of responsibility as the captain did you, did you have to shoulder to try and get the team through that time of crisis?
3: Well, guys, it was a a day that didn't just change our careers. It changed my life. I mean, you know, I I have thought about it over the years at at various points, and it was a life-changing experience for me personally. And I got the call that morning and and ended up trying to get a hold of Clark. He was out of town and then contacting Mike, and Mike and I went and identified the body at the hospital. And then it was up to me to call my teammates one by one from a nurse's station in the hospital and tell them they had to come down to the hospital. And so you're waking guys up at probably at that point, 8.39 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And, you know, the disbelief and the way that team, I guess, came together, it, it, it was arguably guys Mike Keenan at his absolute best. And it may sound strange to say that in those circumstances, but... The way he kept that team together, the the way he made us communicate with each other and bring it out in each other and bring the emotion out in each other um, was really, really Mike at his best. And, you know, it it, it is literally a time frame of my life that I've thought about often. I've, I've, you know, in a coaching role, in a management role, used as an example that you can learn from other people's mistakes. You don't have to make your own. And Pelly made a mistake that night, and we all lived with it.
2: People often talk about, uh, remember, the game after that, which was against Edmonton, which was at the Spectrum, um, which was a very powerful moment. What do you remember about that, that next game?
3: Um, I'm going to backtrack just just a day to the funeral. And, and Bob Clark had called me in on Tuesday and, and said, um, you have to do the eulogy at Pelly's funeral. And I looked at him, I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he said, look, he said, I did it for Barry Ashby and you've got to do it. I remember going home and thinking, like, what is that? Like, I don't even know what that is. And, and sitting at a little wooden table that I still have at 2 in the morning, the night before the funeral, and just starting to write and writing that. And then saying it that next day at the funeral, I couldn't look up uh, at my any of my teammates in that little Swedish church that the funeral was at. And then we move forward, and, and I do know that Glenn Sather was there that day. I remember distinctly seeing him there, and then moving forward to game day, once again, the safest haven for us was in the rink. You know, where we'd been in hospitals, in churches, that wasn't a safe place, and, and now we're back at our own in the rink. And I think they scored in the first shot of the game, and then gradually we took over. And uh, and if I'm not mistaken, Bob Froes was supposed to play the backup goal. He got hurt, and Darren Jensen played that night. And you know, and then but but we were by season's end, guys. We were on an emotional thread that we carried through that year, and we just weren't able to sustain the emotion at the end of the year and lost in the first round of the Rangers.
1: Yeah, and then then the '86 '87 season comes along, and you guys, you know, all of a sudden here comes Ron Hextall, a guy nobody had really thought about, nobody knew, up from the farm system, plays the opening game against, against Edmonton brilliantly, wins the game, and now all of a sudden you're back on track. And you had another great season. Uh, everything kind of falls into place. You get to the playoffs again, and you make another great run all the way through, uh, and you get to the finals. And once again, <laughs> once again, you're up against the Edmonton Oilers, who um, at that point may have even been better than they had been two years earlier. Uh, and you had one of the most... One of the most breathtaking series, seven-game series, I think that a lot of people, NHL historians, the Red Fishers and all those guys, Frank Orr, guys have been covering hockey for years, said that they thought that that seven-game series that you had with Edmonton was one of the great series of all time. And you took, that, you took that Edmonton team all the way down to the third period of Game 7, as beat up as your team was. It was just, an, I mean, you came up short, but it was just getting that far was an incredible accomplishment.
3: He really was. Now they were better, but we were better as well. You know, Rick Talkett and, and Peter Zazzle specifically, and and some of the young guys. Murray Craven's game was at a whole different level. Ronnie Sutter's game was at a different level um, than that then they had all been two years previous. In that time around, we didn't have Tim Kerr, and I I believe that Tim Kerr would have been the difference in that series. You know, he was he was such a force, and they didn't. You know. You know, they didn't have as great of players as they had. We had the net front presence with Tim Kerr on that power play, and they didn't have anybody that could handle them. And I think that was the difference, in, you know, in the series, as much as to say what a fine line it was. But the, I think it was the emotional swings in that series, in, you know, coming back and winning game five and game six, and then having to wait an extra day the circus had committed to Edmonton. So we rather than carry the momentum of game six right into game seven, we had to wait an extra day. And I think that was a factor, you know, I just do. And, and, you know, as you look at the minute things that were really separators for those two teams. Now we had one hall of famer and they had, I think eight right now, (laughs) Um, you know, but we were a team, we were a team. And I think when I'm asked about team, I think of those teams and they're different teams That's a different team from the 85 team, but the elements of a team were clearly there. And, you know, it wasn't a collection of great players. That was a team.
2: Dave Pullen is our guest. Um, Ray mentioned uh, Ron Hextall, and he was a boy. He was a singular player when he came up. Um, did you have any idea before he showed up who he was, what he did, the style he played, and how that would impact the team?
3: No. No, this may shock you, but I wasn't interested in a young goalie at camp. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't, right? And, uh, you know, we had the best goaltender in the world in Pelly Lindbergh, And so I wouldn't even, I didn't even recall Hexy from his first camp. Um, and, and it was, then we knew, we knew what he was doing in, in Hershey, clearly. And they were a championship-type team. And and when Pelly had his accident, I think there was a temptation on Bob Clark's you know have to call him up and he didn't he wanted to leave or to develop because he knew he was raw and he actually would tell you to this day that that development through his year and the successes he had in Hershey because uh, they went on a Calder Cup run that year and you know were a big separator for him and how you know
1: how much he matured
3: but no we didn't know about him I didn't know about his fiery personality I didn't know any of that stuff uh, we figured it out pretty quickly guys
1: yeah he was he was great that year and you know one of the few players to um, win the con smythe as the m v p on the losing team doesn't happen very often certainly and and doubly so for a rookie but he did it all and uh and he was he was a great part of that team and it was a great run for for the flyers and a great time in flyer's history and for sure i but then you know when it came time after that there was some period team goes through a period of change um and then it comes to the time when you're sort of coming down towards the end of your career here, uh, and it comes to the time that they're going to, they take your captaincy away, uh, and I just I just wondered I mean you had you had been the captain for a long time and you had worn the sea very well uh, when Paul Holmgren came to you and said we're making a change at captain, I mean I, did you that had to hurt I mean for what it meant to you and what the Flyers meant to you at that point uh, to have that happen even though you had a good relationship with Paul. That had to be a very painful thing.
3: Well, it really did. It hurt a great deal, but it hurt because he said he thought the leadership had changed on the team. And I didn't think it had. And, and I remember having a philosophical conversation with him about whether he wanted the leadership to change in the team or he thought it already had. And he said he thought it already had. And I think he was wrong. And I think to this day, I think he was wrong. Um, you know, if he wanted to shift it to the younger guys, that's a different thing. And I was hurt as well. I had broken my hand and so I was out and, you know, when all of that went on. And I just thought, of course, you know, I, I'm not in as big a role as the captain. I'm hurt right now. I'm not even dressed. But th- that one did sting a lot because I did take a tremendous amount of pride in being the captain of that team. But in no way did I see that as the start of the trade. And, in fact, there were no rumors that I would be traded. There's still, to this day, no rumors ever that I'm aware of, or was I involved in trade talks? I heard um, from Minnesota uh, in later in life that, that I, that they came very close to trading me for Neil Broughton, you know, prior to that, mm-hmm. to moving me to Boston for Ken Winsman, but certainly no way did that make the media or, you know, any rumors or anything. So, you know, very, very disappointed when I was uh, had the captaincy removed. And then obviously the trade followed, a month
2: later maybe. Dave Poulin is our guest. We've got uh geez, just about five minutes to go and, and to be honest, Ray's wife's gonna be upset if we don't ask about Notre Dame, so I'll ask the <laughs> last I'll ask the last NHL question and then let it go there. As you said, you went to the Bruins, you end up with the caps, you get back to the Stanley Cup finals another time, don't win the cup. Um as the career ends, I mean it's thirteen years, um, some great moments. Um totally fulfilled you the 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 NHL career is everything you could have asked for
3: absolutely absolutely you know the icing on the cake would have been a Stanley Cup win but it doesn't change me as a person in any manner i got i played six times in the final four and you know and i and i got the Stanley Cup finals three times and and quite frankly we left everything we had out there it, it, if i thought that we didn't leave it all out there i think it would hurt more but even my individual playing career um, when I was done playing, guys, I was done playing and had no regrets. And, and I think it, I was fortunate. I'll backtrack right to the start of this conversation and bo- having Bobby Clark as a mentor about leaving it all out there. Um, you know, I believe that what I had, I left out there.
1: Yeah, no one will ever doubt that. And you had you – know, you go to Boston, you get a chance to go to the finals again, again again. run into the Oilers. Uh, then you finish up with Washington. And then your playing career ends um, after a long run, more than 700 regular season games. uh, And then you get into coaching, which I think a lot of people probably foresaw for you for a long time. I mean, uh, as intelligent a player as you were and as natural a leader as you were, you seem to be ideally suited for coaching. And you get the opportunity to to not just coach, but coach at your alma mater to go back to Notre Dame. And that must have been really fun. I mean, to go back to a school that you clearly liked and and really enjoyed, to go back there in a position where – you're the head coach of the hockey program and you were there for a decade.
3: It was, it came very unexpectedly. It happened in January of that year. Um, my last year in Washington, it was the lockout year, 94, 95. So we were just getting set to come back and play. And I got a call on a Sunday afternoon, right out of the blue, like no indication, nothing. And they said they were thinking to make it a change. Would I be interested? And I remember hanging up the phones saying, I just got a really weird call. So I ended up accepting the job while I was still an active player and kept it quiet for a couple more months. And, but, you know, I, I did it for 10 years, guys. I don't think I was ever a coach. I really don't. I think mm. I, I really don't. I, I wasn't wired in the manner and the more I know about coaches now than I ever have, cause I've managed them and watched them, you know, so closely. Um, it's a different makeup. And I, I think I'm more of a manager than a coach and I did coach for 10 years and we got the program back on track at Notre Dame and we're able to move towards building a magnificent facility. And, and now it's a perennial top 10, you know, um, club and, and, you know, they've turned out a lot of pros and it's doing everything that I ever envisioned it could do. I just don't think I was a coach and, you know, coaches from a wiring standpoint, have to wake up some mornings And by nature. I'm an incredibly positive person, And you had to walk in that locker room with a totally different mentality than you wanted to. And, you know, you were managing 26, 18 to 23-year-olds, and it was constant. It never, ever left you. And it really, really beat me up as an individual, as a person. And and hence my, you know, my decision after 10 years to step back from coaching.
2: Interesting. And you're now in broadcasting, as we mentioned. You were recently uh, covered uh, hockey for the Olympics for uh, TSN, I believe. Um, so let's wrap with this, Dave Pullen. We've really enjoyed this hour. You did spend six years here. You are identified certainly in this town, and you said uh, wherever you go, people see you uh, as as a member of the Flyers. Um, what's your What's your sense of this city? Its hockey culture and its fans.
3: Unique, and you know, and I and I hope that never changes. I I did fear. Um, as I sat at Mr. Snyder's funeral, that he was the one common strand that went through the organization. And and I thought, you know, how blessed the organization was, how the city was to have him there from day one, you know, for his entire tenure right through, you know, his departure and his death. And um, I think it was just, it was so unique that one person identified with the franchise like that. And, you know, and, and now I think it, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take some work to get it back to where it was. And, and I think that's always – the foundation is certainly there. It's a unique team, a unique bond with the city. Um, the Broad Street Bullies will never leave. I mean, it just won't. Uh, if there's a jersey that's associated with a city, with a team, that's longstanding and, and will always be there in some fashion. But I think there's some work to do to get it back to the identity that it had for so long. Yeah,
2: amen to that. Dave Pullen, it's been a great hour. Uh, this Tell Us Your Story is sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at com slash WIP. Hey, thanks so much, Dave. Really appreciate it.
3: Hey, great to catch up, guys. Good luck with everything, and uh, maybe we'll see you in an arena soon.
2: Well, there you go, uh, Ray, and that was thoroughly enjoyable uh, because he's a great interview, and he was a great guy. And you understand you. I, I was here not for his entire career, but you were, and understand what he means to this town, this franchise, these fans.
1: Yeah, um, it was not easy to be the guy succeeding Bob Clark wearing the sea for that franchise back when that meant something, uh, and uh, and it was a very tough. I think, you know, they, they, they could have given it to Mark Howe and nobody would have complained. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there were some guys on that team, you know, Brad Marsh had been a captain before. I mean, everybody was a little surprised when they gave it to Dave Pullen because he was so young and so new. But they knew what they were doing. I mean, he had the perfect temperament uh, to be the captain of this team. And he was the captain for a long time through some very, very good years. And, you know, the thing you kind of can tell, and we could tell back then when we were interviewing him, and you can certainly hear it now in this interview, is how bright he is. I mean, he was—he uh, graduated from Notre Dame with a 3.3 GPA, which is mm-hmm. not easy. So he was a dean's list, dean's list scholar, and uh, heck of a heck of a hockey player. And he played here for a long time, and will always be remembered as one of the most popular players in the city's history. Yeah, well,
2: that was fun, uh, and that was a really good one. And it's uh, been a fun day. You and I will be back tomorrow. Uh, a couple of things I want to do tomorrow. I really want to—I st- mean, Sixers play tonight in Miami. Ray, uh, I think. This could be the first loss of the James Harden era.
1: It's going to be tough. Yeah. To go back to back. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really tough. Yeah. So I'll do
2: that. And I want to uh, start talking about um, kind of NFL season is opening up. You and I are both going to be off next weekend. So we want to do a little preview of. The NFL season, what's coming up there. Dan Wilson, we got to choose a caller of the day. That's your big job. What do you got? Yeah, a lot of good callers today, but we're going to go with an old friend, Linda and Uh She wins <laughs> caller. of the day. Ah, that's nice. Yeah, you can never go wrong with Linda. No, no. Linda wins a $50 gift certificate to Scheib Sports. where There's a story in every stitch. Visit them in Center City or at com.
1: Congratulations
2: to her. Uh, Ray, you got anything going tonight?
1: Um. No, I'm probably going to start laying the groundwork for Tommy and me. I think that's great.
2: It opens, when is it open in Bucks County? It
1: opens, uh, We Tommy and me will be opening at the beautiful Bucks County Playhouse, April the 7th, and tickets are on sale as we speak. So uh, go to the Bucks County, Bucks County Playhouse website and order your tickets for Tommy and me. Ten performances, um, and it's a beautiful theater. If you've never been up there, right there on the Delaware River, it's going to be springtime. It's actually going to be nice, so please come up and see us. Uh, if you've seen the play before, come back and see it again. And if you've never seen it, this is your best time. I love that
2: play. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Uh, James Seltzer, Elliott Shore Parks, coming up next with Go Birds Radio. A great job by Dan Wilson. Ray and I will see you tomorrow right here, same spot, on 94 WI.